0: Get your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 46, please. Thanks, Hans. Now, uh, if you're new with us, our practice is to just teach through whole books of the Bible. We're not preaching through the whole of Isaiah. We did a chunk of it, I think, the year before last. Uh, But at the moment, we're working our way through chapters 40 to 55. Uh, Isaiah is a big book it's got more chapters than any other book in the Bible bar Psalms Uh, Jeremiah is actually longer in words but Isaiah is a big and a chunky book but it's just so important uh, because so much of the New Testament it's actually the second most quoted book in the New Testament so if you want to understand Jesus you've got to understand Isaiah because Isaiah was part of the Bible that Jesus read Paul quotes it prolifically Um, and so we're preaching through it and, and trying to look for the way uh, that it points towards the Lord Jesus and uh, the, the way that God addressed his ancient people in ways that f- for us as his contemporary people, we need to pay heed of. So let's, uh, let's pray, um, which is always the best thing to do when we read, and then we'll, we'll think about Isaiah 46 and 47. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we, we come before you as, uh, as people that really need your help. Um, we find it easy to be distracted. We find it easy to go our own way. Uh, we find it easy to pursue the desires of our own hearts rather than the uh, the priorities of your kingdom and so we pray that you would prompt us and guide us, uh, teach us, rebuke us, um, change us, train us in righteousness, equip us for good works we pray uh, as we respond rightly to your word today. So we, we thank you for your servant Isaiah And we're grateful too that you send us the Holy Spirit to assist us. So please speak to us afresh today and help us to understand these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 46, starting at verse 1. Actually, we'll go back to chapter 45, verse 20. Um, Isaiah 45, verse 20. Assembled yourselves and come draw near together, you survivors of the nations... They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Now skip down to verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And now down to chapter 46. So Isaiah 46 verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to grey hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry And will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer. Or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Come and sit down in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people, I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand, you showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have laboured from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you've laboured, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Well, I've got to... PowerPoint here and I hope it will be of some help so follow keep your Bibles open because you will need them um and I just want to illustrate this a bit I I took you back to 45:20 because there's two issues that come at the end of chapter 45 that are amplified and reanimated in the chapters that we've just looked at so the first of those is this declaration that people that worship gods that they've made are worshipping no gods at all so the greater makes the lesser so you're greater if you can make something. that makes no sense at all to worship something you've made. That's what God says. That's the foolishness of idolatry. And those gods can't save them. Now, salvation is just a critical issue in the, in, in the Bible. Uh, we live in a world which offers us two ways. We can go God's way or our own way, and at the end, those two ways will be judged. And people that have lived their own way will find themselves experiencing in eternity the choices that they've made in time and at the end of all things God will say you didn't want me in life you'll have to do without me in eternity and that will be a perfectly just outcome so the idea of being saved is just so important but these idols these idol gods that are made by people can't save they can't deliver us from our deepest need which is to know God and to be at peace with him But in verse 22, Yahweh, Israel's God, issues a call. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Bear that in mind. Because a couple of times when we get to chapter 47, the attitude of the Babylonians is quoted back to them. You're saying you are no other. There's, There's no one like you. So they're pitting themselves against God, which is foolish. So chapters 40 to 47, there's 11 warnings of varying lengths about the silliness of idolatry. Sometimes they're moderately humorous, other times they're quite biting. Now I've been thinking about this during the week, how do we preach the same thing over and over again? You might come to me afterwards and say, Steve, there's a lot of repetition in Isaiah, and there is, right? But my theory is this, the whole Bible from cover to cover is God's word, that's what we believe here. Um, If God says it again and again and again, he must have a purpose for it. Now remember this, that Isaiah preached for around 40 years, probably a bit longer. And so what we've got in the book of Isaiah is the record of one man's preaching to a a changing set of circumstances amongst God's people in Jerusalem where he had to keep repeating the same message. Why is that? Because they didn't change. They kept on doing the same things over and over. And so if there are 11 warnings about idolatry, we can't afford to skip them. We need to repeat them because we want to give the same weight to these aspects of scripture that God saw fit to include. Now, back in Deuteronomy, where God laid out the law by which his people were to live when they came out of Egypt into the promised land, if they wanted to live well in the land, they had to live according to his good law. The law was their life. And so Deuteronomy 29 makes it quite clear, verse 18 to 19, beware, lest there be anyone among you whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. In other words, when you get there, don't think to yourself, hmm, now that we're in Canaan, we'd better listen up to what the Baal people do. Baal might be the top dog around here. He says, don't do that, beware, lest there be among you a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So right up front, God has warned them, if you want to live long in the land, you've got to live by my law. The law was good. But he said, don't become complacent and think in your stubbornness, I'm going to let you get away with it forever if you do start getting attracted to these other gods. So complacency leads to disobedience, and disobedience over a long period of time has led to God's people being taken exile from the land into Babylon. Now, Isaiah wrote these words about 150 years before the people who read them experienced what he was writing about. So Isaiah has written words to his own generation, but he's written words that could only really be understood by the generation that was taken captive into Babylon but he's looking ahead of even that and he's saying you will be taken captive but I'm going to restore you and those aspects of the restoration are partially fulfilled when they come back to Jerusalem but there's aspects of the restoration that seem to be so far in the future they must be at the end of all things but right now Isaiah is speaking to people that have reaped the consequences of generational disobedience rebellion against God They're in Babylon, they're surrounded by a system which is very impressive and very powerful but which is full of gods that aren't gods. Now in chapter 47 we read things about their sorceries and their magic. Do you know that even today, I trust there's no one here who looks at their horoscope. Every day, our daily newspapers have the stars. The 12 signs of the zodiac are Babylonian in origin. So the influence of Babylon continues down to the present day. And this idea that somehow the celestial bodies have some sort of say in how things go on earth to the point where people will look and say, "Oh, I'm going to meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger today, comes from Babylon it was taken up by the Greeks but the Babylonians devised the the 12 signs of the zodiac uh, just as a side note if ever kids used to say when I was a teacher kids would say what star sign are you Mr Messer and I'd say I don't have one so feel free to answer that way I, the stars don't determine how I live they play no part in my decisions or in what I think happens to me so uh, I, I try to buck the trend they never understood it but I tried to explain after that anyway Why do these things have to be said over and over? Well, Steve Steve Turner's an English poet. He's a Christian. He's done a lot of writing about stuff going on in the rock music industry. But he's a very talented poet. And uh, one of his poems is a particular favourite of mine because I can remember it from top to bottom. It's called History Lesson. And it goes like this. History Lesson. History repeats itself. Has to. No one listens. Now, I'm deaf, so I ask people to repeat themselves all the time, right? Um, it's not because I'm rude, or not paying attention, it's because I can't hear. But you've heard the saying, history repeats, haven't you? Well, he says it's like a deaf man. We're asking history to repeat itself. Why is that? Because no one listens. Why does God have to keep telling us, don't worship idols? Because we find it so easy to ignore him when it comes to the attractive things of the world. Now, idolatry, what is it? I don't suppose many people here will be be attracted to the worship of of a block of wood that they've carved themselves but Rico Tice is an English evangelist and he defines idolatry this way he says it's when a good thing becomes a God thing so the book of Timothy tells us that God's given us all things richly to enjoy did you know that God likes it when you enjoy his creation did you know that? You don't have to feel ashamed of enjoying watching a good movie or eating a block of chocolate or listening to good music or going out in the bush or everything that God's given us can be enjoyed. But when we enjoy it too much to the expense of worshipping him, when our delight at being in the bush keeps us away from gathering with God's people, when our love of going to the football means that we spend more time thinking about that than God, it's become an idol. So Rico Tice says an idol is when a good thing becomes a God thing. John Calvin, the great French reformer, one of the architects of the Protestant Reformation, in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said this, the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. So what that means is your brain and mind, your heart and mind, has an incredible capacity to keep inventing and reinventing things that will take the place that only God should occupy. The human mind is a perpetual forge of idols and liable to be misled. Why does God have to keep repeating himself? Because his people are used to not listening. Now that could be us. It's very easy to sit in judgment on these people who've been taken into captivity. Of course, we'd never do that. But each in our little way has that tendency. If we think we're above this, we're not heeding the warning of Deuteronomy 29. Don't let your heart become stubborn and complacent thinking, oh, it'll never happen to me. We've got to be careful. Some years ago I was talking to a friend who told me he'd been to counselling because he was going through some difficult times and the counsellor started off by saying, who are you? Who are you really? And so he rattled off all the things that defined him. So what defines you? Because that's what we're talking about in terms of our reading today. We're talking about what defines God's people as opposed to the people of the nation that they've now found themselves captive in. What defines you? What is your bottom line? What are they going to say about you at your funeral? Do you ever think about that? You could write it down and have it read out, I suppose, but... uh, but I've, I've told people in regard to my funeral, I don't want anything said about football at the funeral. I like Melbourne Footy Club and I hope like anything they win tomorrow. But that doesn't define me. And if they talk about footy at the funeral, I hope it's very brief. I'd much rather that they talked about Jesus. And I hope that it's, it's my faith in Jesus that defines me. And I hope it's what defines you. Who are you really? So what's your bottom line and who can save you is what we're talking about today. Uh, Verses 1 to 13 of chapter 46, just scan down them, offer us a contest between the gods. Gods who were made or the God who creates everything. Gods who must be carried or the God who carries, verses 3 to 4. So Bel and Marduk we read about in uh, verses 1 and 2 there. They're two of the most prominent gods of Babylon at the time, uh, Bel and Nebo. Bel was also named by the name of Marduk. Uh, Bel was a god who had as one of his symbols a dragon, a dragonish type of god. Um, And so Bel was the number one god in Babylon. And uh, and so if you wanted to get along well in Babylon, you needed to pay careful attention to the worship of Bel. Nebo was Bel's son. Now, every year on their New Year's Day, there would be a procession where the statues of Bel and Nebo were brought out of their temple and paraded through the streets of Babylon. Now, if you've ever been to Berlin, I had the very good fortune of going to Berlin on a study tour a few years ago, and, and so I went to the Pergamum Museum, and in the Pergamum Museum, they built this massive great room to contain the reconstructed walls of Babylon. There they are. That's what's called the Ishtar Gate. Can you see it? Or am I in the way? That's the Ishtar Gate. Now, have a look at the scale of the people there going through the arch. That was the small bit of the gate. It was the eighth gate in from the entrance to Babylon. And between there and the next gate was this very long corridor. Babylon was considered one of the seven great wonders of the world. The walls of Babylon were so massively impressive that when the Greek historian Herodotus decided to put the number uh, top seven wonders of the world together, the walls of Babylon were amongst them. Now these gates, Daniel and his friends walked through. It's awe-inspiring to be there. But these were the small ones. In the um, storeroom of the museum in Germany, they've got all the bricks that will make up the big ones, but they haven't got a room big enough for them. It's awe-inspiring to walk through these things. That there is the dragon that goes along with Bel. So when Daniel and his friends, when all of the Israelite exiles walked through those gates, right in front of them, staring them in the face, were these images of the gods that were worshipped by the people around about them. That's the sort of thing that an artist's impression made. That's the kind of procession that they would have had through these gates. Uh, there's the temple of, uh, of bel way up the back there and so he would have been brought out and paraded so everybody could bow down and worship that's the prevailing atmosphere in the world that the exiles were in now isaiah well, isaiah on god's behalf pours ridicule on the fact that these poor old idols have to be carried around by beasts of burden these idols can't do anything they can't move They've got to be put on carts with wheels and the poor old cattle that are towing the carts, they get tired. They get wearied according to our reading. Have a look at it there. These poor beasts of burdens are wearied by carrying these great massive lumps of metal. Can you see the foolishness of worshipping things that can't move under their own, under their own steam and they have to be moved by cattle? That get tired as they do it. But the particular reason that they're being moved is because in verse 2 we read that these idols are now being taken into captivity. So who are the captives in Babylon? That's God's people from Jerusalem. But God's looking ahead to a day, we've seen this previously, where he raises up King Cyrus of Persia, who hasn't even been born yet. And he's going to come and so comprehensively take over Babylon that these idols will lose their position of prominence and they'll be carted out of there on carts with by these these animals. What a silly situation. So the contest of the gods, gods who must be carried or the god who carries. So verses three to four, Yahweh makes it very clear that right from the beginning of things, when he formed them as a nation, he'd been carrying them. Now that reminds us of the Exodus. Exodus chapter 19 when God brings his people out of Egypt to take them to the promised land he says I've carried you on eagle's wings. Deuteronomy chapter 1 in the wilderness I the Lord your God carried you. I wonder if anybody here has had the experience of being carried by God. Isn't, isn't that what we talk about? God is a personal God who cares about us. Can you look back to a time of disappointment or distress or danger or just anxiety where looking back on it, you can say, I felt carried. Can you? That's the God we adore. The God who consistently says, I will carry you, but not just in the past, for as long as the future extends, because he says, I'm going to carry you to grey hairs. Now, excuse my lack of them, but um, what that means is for as long as you live, I'll be there. I'll carry you. Now, that's a wonderful promise, but you won't get that from a block of wood. You won't get reassurance from worshipping things you've made yourself. You won't get reassurance from the things that the world looks to, which always disappoint. We live in a world where anxiety is an industry, where depression is at epidemic levels. I read a book some years ago that said if one-third of the population had measles, we'd say that's a measles epidemic. But he says, this is it was an American book, but it's probably no less true of Australia, one-third of our adolescents are clinically depressed. That's an epidemic. The stuff the world values doesn't pay out. But Yahweh says, I'll carry you till you get old. And there's people here who know exactly what he's talking about because they've experienced it. But Yahweh is the carrying God, whereas those other gods need to be carried. So we continue in the contest to the gods. Verses 5 to 7 talks about the created gods which cannot save. Uh, to whom will you liken me and make me equal? He goes through the fact that, um, that these created gods just can't do anything. Uh, the choice there is the God that rules history and the God who saves in verses 12 to 13. So in verse 5, to whom will you like me and make me equal? Compare me that we may be alike. The creator God versus the created gods the carrying God versus the God who must be the gods who must be carried, the hearing and saving God versus gods who can't hear anything. I remember some years ago Prince Charles talked about how he talked to his tomatoes. Did you ever hear that? Uh, our future king goes into the hot house and has a chat with his tomatoes. He says it helped it struck me as being a bit implausible. But why would you talk to a block of wood? Why would you talk to something that you've made? Yahweh says, I hear, because Yahweh is the living God. So Yahweh is the ruler of history. He's demonstrated that by the way he's helped his people throughout their time. But he demonstrates it again because he says, I'm going to tell you about the things that will happen one day. And we've already seen that he's named Cyrus by name at the end of chapter 44 and then in chapter 45 he names Cyrus the king of Persia who's not even alive yet and he will one day take over the Babylonian empire at the end of that little passage there in verse 13 verse 12 and 13 Yahweh says, he commands his people, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. He says, I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Have you ever asked yourself, how long, O Lord? Have you ever said that? It's okay to because it's in the Bible. But the only time that that, question or request of God is answered is in Revelation 6 and the answer there is a little longer. Part of trusting God is leaving the timing to him. Revelation 6 makes it very clear that God has purposes that can't be rushed but here's the thing while we're enduring suffering God hasn't finished saving people but there will come a day when suffering is over and so is salvation so it's only possible to suffer because God hasn't finished saving people so when he says I won't delay what that means is when the time is right I'm going to do everything that I've promised but until then part of being a follower of the Lord Jesus part of trusting God Is waiting on God. We've seen that in Isaiah 40. What does it say there? Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Part of being an obedient disciple of Jesus is growing in patience, which is one of the fruit of the Spirit. So it's okay to ask how long, O Lord, so long as we're prepared to put up with the answer. A little longer. But when God gets ready and when he gets to go, it's it's all going to happen because he won't delay. But what's he working towards? He's working towards the day when the Lord Jesus will come and be glorified in His saints, and marvel about that among uh, marvel that among all who believe. God is working towards a creation which is so completely made new that the whole of the creation will be a holy place in which His glory lives. Once the glory lived in the temple, the temple's been destroyed by the time Isaiah's uh, talking about these things. But we look ahead to a day that's spoken of in Revelation 21 when the city will need no sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light and its lamp is the lamb. The future is glorious for people that put their trust in God through the Lord Jesus. But we need to wait. But chapter 47 is addressing not God's people in Babylon not the the ex-residents of Jerusalem who are now in Babylon chapter 47 addresses Babylonians and it does so in fairly stark terms verses 1 to 4 speak of Babylon's humiliation come sit in the dust o virgin daughter of Babylon sit on the ground without a throne so this is an overthrow Babylon used to be king of the heap queen of the heap top dog amongst the nations Yahweh's looking ahead to a day when that won't be true and they're going to be sitting in the dust, which is as far from the throne as it's possible to be. It's complete reversal of fortune. Chapter uh, Verses 5 to 7 speak of Babylon's guilt. So Babylon was raised up by God to be the instrument of his punishment, to punish his people. God had promised that in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He says, if you stray from my words, if you keep doing it, if you don't listen when I send prophets, then you will be punished. He used Babylon to punish Jerusalem. But he says to Babylon, you enjoyed it too much. You went beyond anything that was fair. You were very harsh on the elderly and the, the the infirm and the frail. And so because of the cruelty of the Babylonians, they're going to be judged in verses 5 to 7. But verses 8 to 11 speak of Babylon's pride. So have a look what verse 8 says. Another command to the Babylonians, now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. They're echoing words that only Yahweh can say. But this is racial superiority and this is a tendency of great nations right throughout history to say there's no one quite like us. We're the top of the pile. It got the 20th century into a whole mess of wars, didn't it? when one nation thought it was better than the rest. Well, that's the Babylonian problem, but Yahweh's not going to put up with that kind of rivalry forever. And so verses 12 to 15 tell us that Babylon indeed has a fiery future. Now, you know, when it says that these things are going to come upon you in a moment, that's that's something that's taken up in the book of Revelation, that's quoted in the book of Revelation, it'll come on you in a single day. But that literally came true. If you know the story of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5 you've got King Belshazzar who is the son of the great Nebuchadnezzar and he's hosting a feast for thousands of his officials and while they're drinking and partying and carrying on what happens? A hand starts to write on the wall and they call in old Daniel because the queen mother says yeah there is this bloke who can he can read weird stuff so Daniel comes in and he says oh king you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting your kingdom cannot stand and that night that very night the persians came in and took babylon in a moment while they were partying and completely unaware just like isaiah said they won't even be aware and babylon came to an end but verses 12 to 15 tell us that babylon has a fiery future now have a look at these words because they're almost humorous So verse 12, stand fast in your enchantments. In other words, go on then, get on with your magic. See where it's got you, see where it'll take you. If you want your magicians, if you want your astrology, then go on with it and see where it leads you. Verse 13, you are wearied with your many counsellors. This stuff doesn't work and it's going to wear you out because they can't save you. But then verse 14, behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Now, is it cold down in Mafra at the moment or is it only in Druin? Who's enjoying their wood fire? (laughs) This is no wood fire. This is no backyard fire pit that you can gather your mates around and enjoy a bit of convivial time. This is the fire of judgment. Now, earlier on in this section, God says, I'm going to save my people through the fires and through the floods. But the images that are given here for Babylon, they're going to be destroyed by flood and they're going to be judged by fire. So that's the penalty for people that continue to make God their enemy. He won't do it straight away, which is why so many people, I think, get complacent. But he will do it. Because he's the God who's in charge of history and he's the God of just justice. So this is a fire that their gods can't deliver them from. So we get back to the beginning. What's your bottom line? Where do you stand in the scheme of things between Isaiah 46 and 47? What defines you? How will your life be summarised? There'll come a day when there'll be A room full of sad people and some of them will say nice things about you but what will be said what what ammo what information are you are you giving them to to sum your life up because we all face this choice Zion the city of God that we read about in Psalm 46 that we sang about Zion the city of God is a symbol for where God lives among his people and that's taken up in Revelation to be the picture of the future eternal state, God living with his people forever in a world of glory and beauty and wonder. But the choice is Zion or Babylon and fire. Now Babylon in the book of Revelation symbolises the world and she's a prostitute sitting on a multi-headed beast but it's a symbol of the world in which Christians have to live. So don't think of Babylon as being something that happened way, way, way back because the Bible says, no, Babylon's all around you even now. And the Bible wants, the New Testament makes it very plain that Christians need to regard themselves as people in exile because we don't yet live in our permanent home. So we're temporary residents in a Babylonish world, a world that is attractive, a world that is seductive, a world that looks prosperous. And a world that will kill you. So don't be complacent about your Babylon. Babylon's in Mafra. It's the tendency that says, no, don't be too serious about God. Live a little. Don't take your religion too seriously. Babylon confronts us in many ways. Now remember that it must have been incredibly impressive to go through those gates And to remember that your city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. It's been left in ruins. And so the people who went there might have been thinking, maybe our God's not such a good God after all. Maybe Bel and Nebo are stronger. But we're living in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to the followers of the Lord Jesus, if you haven't noticed it. I heard a talk by this guy, Steve McAlpin. He's a pastor in Perth earlier this year. And he's written a book called Being the Bad Guys. And he says how to live for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. And he says in the book that we're going to have to learn how to be the best bad guys possible because the world thinks not only that we're nuts, but that we're evil. So he gave us, He told us a story. He went to a wedding and um, sitting at a table with people he didn't know and they said, what do you do? And he says, I'm a pastor. And they didn't say, oh, that's nice. They didn't say, oh, whereabouts? They didn't say, what do you do? They said, where do you stand on same-sex marriage? That was the reply. Now, that's pretty comfortable stuff to talk about at a wedding with strangers, isn't it? But that's what the world thinks of Christians. They think we're out of step. They think we're bigots and nasty because we have a view of life that is different. That's the world that we're living in. Have you ever had anybody say to you, you don't believe that, do you? Have you ever had that? Where it just looks like they think you're nuts, you're just, you, you, you've, you've just gone way down in their estimate of however intelligent you are. It's happened to me. I was talking to two teachers. I used to be a school teacher and we were talking about a child that went from my school to their school. And uh, she caused a fair bit of trouble and she was still causing trouble and that's why they wanted to talk to me. And they said, oh, her parents are very religious, aren't they? And so she complained about the strictness of the religious upbringing she'd had. And then they said, you don't believe that, do you? And I did. So what do you do? Because I can, I can tell that they're really uncomfortable with me. But here's another one. You don't still believe that, do you? That's what ex-Christians say to you. You don't still believe in that God of judgment, do you? And they make it sound like they've moved on and become more grown up in their faith. And you start to feel, oh, maybe I'm a simpleton. Now maybe you're faithful. There is a price to be paid for following the Lord Jesus. Living in a Babylon world but being citizens of Zion. So we read before, don't be conformed any longer to this world. 1 Corinthians 10 says, flee from idolatry. Take take heed, lest you fall. Flee from idolatry. But the bottom line, the choice we face every day, are we going to go the way of the idols or are we going to go the way of Jesus? Because idols, what the world believes, Babylon can't save you. It'll disappoint you again and again and again. Stay with the God who will carry you through to grey hairs. And so the challenge for us is, will we wait patiently for God to finish the work that he's doing in the world and in us? Now, some of you might be wondering, whatever happened to Babylon? Well, I'm glad you asked. And as we finish, I want to just point it out. That's what Babylon looked like in 1887. That's what remained of the Ishtar Gates, just buried by the sands of history. So what you see in the Pergamon Museum had to be dug up and put back bit by bit. So after a couple of years of digging, that's what it looked like. But then once they'd done the work of excavation, they had to reassemble the whole thing. You see, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But the word of God goes on forever because he's the God who'll carry you to grey hairs. He's the God who can save. So turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off and my salvation will not delay. It'll come just when the time is right. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. For the people of Mafra Community Church. Did you know you're his glory? Did you know that? That's what he says about you. Don't need to boast about it, you just need to rest in it. Yahweh thinks you're his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these incredible words. Uh, we pray that you would help us to take to heart the challenge that they bring to us. Uh, please help us not to be complacent and think that'll never happen to me. Please help us not to think we're so strong that we're not, it's not within possibility that we could fall. Help us to flee from idolatry. Help us to be wary of Babylon and yet not frightened of it. Help us to put our trust in you and to be content to wait for you uh, until you complete all of your purposes for us and for our world. Uh, And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus, uh, the one who set us free from guilt and shame and the slavery of sin and who establishes us now so that we can look forward to a wonderful future, a glorious future in the restored new creation. Father, we thank you for your great and precious privileges and we ask that you would grant us grace and strength to live in the light of them. In Jesus' name, amen.